Welcome to the podcast edition of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. I'm your host, Pat Braden, broadcasting to you over the virtual airwaves from the Love Shack studio here in the heart of Old Town Yellowknife Northwest Territories. Now, I'm a bass player, Chapman stick player, singer-songwriter, and I've been playing music throughout the North since about 1977. As a young musician, I was caught up in the explosion of popular music in the world through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. As I got older, I thought there must have been the same thing happening up here, just in a different place and on a different scale. So in 2003, I started to interview the older players who taught me most of what I know today, and many more musicians that I'd only ever heard of. My intention was to have an accessible and free place where anyone could go to learn about these players, and the musical times and the lives that they lived. Over the years, I've collected 30-plus interviews and created an archival website at www.musiciansofthemidnightsun.com. Some of these interviews are quite long, so I wanted to bring the core of their stories to a more accessible format. So I created this series of podcasts to continue the celebration of the musical lives of these northern musicians who performed in northern Canada from the 1950s through to the mid-1970s. Thanks for tuning in. Please send any questions and comments to me through this website. I hope you enjoy this podcast episode of Musicians of the Midnight Sun. In this podcast, we turn the spotlight on Yellowknife bass player Rob Wixon. Rob's father was hired to work for the newly formed NWT government, and the family moved north, arriving in Yellowknife New Year's Eve 1967. Rob came of age surrounded by the vibrant local music scene in the early 1970s. He was determined to make his own way, surviving through sometimes tenuous circumstances, and jamming constantly with his lifelong friend Wayne Bertrand. Rob kept busy working multiple jobs in Yellowknife, always with a keen eye towards the musicians and the music scene as it was unfolding in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Shortly, he and Wayne were joined by multi-instrumentalist, the late Brian Colleen, and drummer Kim Ferry to form the band Sky Circle. I first met Rob when I was about 12 years old. I had been picked from my school to work as a page at the Legislative Assembly. Rob worked for the clerk of the Territorial Council and was my boss for a few weeks. He was a cool guy, snappy dresser, kind of intense, but always clear about the task at hand when I worked for him. Later on, Sky Circle played for my high school dances. I can still see Rob with a Gibson Ripper bass hanging from his shoulders, holding down the bottom end for the folk rock hits of the day and some of their original songs. Rob brings a distinct perspective, with often humorous insights of the local music scene and of the musicians who made it happen. The years have not faded Rob's love for playing music, nor his drive to be a doer to benefit his community. Okay, so we're in Victoria. I'm talking with Rob Wixon, and it's October 25th today, in 2018. Thanks so much for doing this, Rob. Um, My pleasure. If I could ask you right off the bat how music came into your life as a young man and just those early musical years. Well, yeah, I'm a 60s boy, so born in the 50s, so when the Beatles came along, 
our ancestors peak, peak. But I remember years before that, listening to radio, listening to Nat King Cole, listening to Louis Armstrong, Sinatra, Dean Martin, all those guys were on, on the radio all the time. So I knew the songs. Uh, because if I was homesick, we'd hear have the radio on, and that's all you heard. Yeah, where was home? Ottawa at that time. But the Beatles really turned me on. That, as soon as I heard the Beatles, that was it. She Loves You was my first record I ever bought. And my parents said, oh, you'll never be able to buy that by the people who wrote the song. And I said, well, of course I will. <laughs> never thought of it any other way. And, and I remember that. Then got to Halifax, and in Halifax I got an interest in performing more, because in Ottawa I actually sang in a choir. Uh, in junior high school, so I was quite thralled with the idea of singing. And I got to Halifax and some guys around the neighborhood, we decided to pretend we had a band, right? We'd get this one guy had a bass and one guy had a guitar and I'd sing. <laughs> Not very well, but we'd give it a go. We had some fun and all the girls seemed to think that was cool, so that was good. So I'd be around 13, 14 in those days. What, what year would that have been then? Uh, I'd be 65, 67 type of thing. What songs were you playing? Tobacco Road. Yeah, I remember that. It's a Blues Magoos, Tobacco Road. That was our big song. Gloria, another one. Yeah, so a couple of couple of standards. The three chord standards you can. Tobacco Road, dee dee. Yeah, I was born. I can still remember some of the lyrics. Anyhow, so I got to Yellowknife, and so I had this music energy building. And of course, Yellowknife. When I got there in 67, New Year's City 67, 68 would be the year. Um, people like Tony Gilchrist and, and Wayne Burton and uh, Tommy Hudson was playing with the Cachel Hall Band. And uh, they were the two rival bands in those days. I can't remember the name of the Cachel Hall Band. Tommy Hudson was, blew me away as a singer. He's just, they had their own equipment. They had the trainer amps. It's kind of neat that they had their own gear and kind of special. But then there's Gary Tees and John Tees playing with, uh, not Normie Glowich, his older brother, Larry Glowich, and uh, and as a drummer, and they had another guitar player, and I can't remember his name either. Um, anyhow, so I can remember them playing the junior high school and the high school dances. We were at Sir John, that's where we played. And then Tony Gilchrist came along. And Tony Gilchrist, in the school hallway, or the smoking hallway, used to play guitar. And he was very good. He had a great voice. And he played simple songs and it, that everyone knew. And we all hung around the hallway, the smoking hallway, with no ventilation. That's <laughs> just crazy. And, and it fascinated me. And I would have loved to have gotten into a band then. Never really quite made it, uh, even though I was kind of looking around. Uh, okay, I'll hold, I'll hold you there. How did, how did you come up to Yellowknife in New Year's Eve? <laughs> by car. Um, my, my dad got transferred, or left the Air Force in Halifax and got offered a job in Yellowknife as their chief of finance. Right, so good money. I'll do that a couple of years before I move home to Victoria, pay for the property we're buying and stuff like that. So we flew out to Victoria. They drove out in the little white car we had, <laughs> little Renault R10. And then we drove the four of us to Yellowknife up the Mackenzie Highway in the middle of winter. With no experience of this, right? Just adventure, right? Got roof rack on the car and the car's no heat. We got these little plastic things over the window so we can see out, right? Just amazing. And we get there, eight o'clock New Year's Eve, and everything's closed. 
and they got us booked into the motel, the worst motel in the place that had mold on the walls. It was just awful. The next morning, my dad woke up the deputy commissioner to get the keys to our house because we were not staying in the motel one more night. And that got us into Illinois. <laughs> and I started Sir John Franklin a couple of days later. So you were just in, in that school, so about grade 9 or grade 10? Actually, I, I was supposed to be in grade 11 that year. But they did some fiddling around. They put me half in grade 11, half grade 10, because I wasn't interested in school anymore. And I just was floating through. So they figured they'd teach me a lesson. But <laughs> it didn't work. Anyhow. What were those memories of those first few days and weeks and stuff like that in Yellowknife like? And it was gold. We had these big parkas that I thought were just yuck. But when I got to Yellowknife, they were pretty nice. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, walking around and, and doing things and getting to know people. It was very crisp. And the school was quite busy, quite a few people in the school because the Cato Hall was there, mm. right? So you had all that population mixed in with the people in the town. The town was growing very fast, so they weren't ready for it. When I moved there, it was 3,800 people. So we, <laughs> we had a good time sort of getting to know each other because we're all new, right? Everybody just got there, all the southern people from, uh, from the government ranks. So did they have a name for you guys? <laughs> well, the, we're the newcomers. Newcomers, that yeah, is everything. Yeah, we were definitely, we're not the old timers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the old time family. You know, like Wayne Burton was an old timer, but he went to St. Pat's, right. right? Him and Gary Tees and John Tees, they all went to St. Pat's. So I didn't get, they're the band. <laughs> they, they didn't go to high school, but Tony Gilkus sort of made that connection, right? We had the Cajun Hall band with Tommy Hudson, which is not bad. And so, that was pretty cool. I kind of liked all that. Now, I still wasn't a musician, yeah, but my next-door neighbor, uh, Andy Sears, had a guitar he'd let me have in my basement. And uh, that was a, my first basement cave, I guess. <laughs> and and uh, so I used to wail away on that, not knowing anything about what I was doing. I think he showed me two chords, maybe. Uh, and then I moved out of home in 69, in summer of 69, and didn't have a guitar and didn't play much music and do stuff. I was learning how to live and being homeless for a little while and working for the government and all kinds of stuff I was doing. So it wasn't until I sort of left town for a few months to go to school and then came back that I bought my first guitar. And Wayne Bertrand helped me with that. Now, I was always fascinated by Wayne because he could play a good guitar, right? Steady any rhythm, right? And uh, so I got to hang out with Wayne, hang out with the bands that way. And so my first guitar was just a cheap little acoustic guitar. But I started learning to play Bob Dylan, Neil Young, all the easy acoustic songs you can think of, right? Where did you buy the guitar? At Carol Glick's. <laughs> yeah. Right? Uh, Mark Whitford was a salesman. And uh, so I'd be about 73, maybe 74, early 74. And once I settled into my apartment, the new apartment I got, uh, I also got interested in maybe having an electric guitar. So Gary Tees was selling his Sunset Amplifier, and he had with it a Vox guitar. He gave me the Vox guitar as long as I paid for the amp. So I had this big, huge amp in my living room and this guitar. You can never t turn it up past two. 
but I would do things with it. I'd have a little box to make it fuzzy because you can't make a Sunsepker amp overdrive. It's just not possible. <laughs> but then, Brian Colleen. Uh, I'd met him a few years earlier, and Wayne knew him as well because he was hung around. I was Josie, his sister, was my girlfriend for a while. I got to know his family and everything else. So Brian Clean came back to Yellow Life around the, just about a year after, maybe the summer that year, with a new wife. And he was playing guitar. And I had my new guitar. And he lived across the street from me. So almost every night around 7 o'clock, there'd be a knock on the door. And there'd be Brian with his guitar and maybe Wayne. And we did this all the time. It seemed like three or four nights a week, we'd be sitting in my living room just jamming acoustic guitars. And uh, that went on for a number of years. In about 75, Wayne and, and Brian decided they'd try a duel. And they went out and... Uh, do you remember the little uh, souvenir shop in the Yellowknife Inn right in the corner across from... I forget her name, ran it. My mother worked for her for a while. Uh, and But Brian and Wayne did a debut there. And I forget the name of the, what they called them. I think they called themselves Grey Owl at the time. Grey Owl and the Beaver people if they had girls singers. <laughs> that was Brian's thing. <laughs> Anyhow, they, they did a gig there where Brian would switch off on violin. And just, he played pretty rough, but he played, it'd be different, right? Yeah. Everybody said, oh, that's interesting. And those days you could get away with anything. Because it didn't matter if you had chops, as, as long as you're making the effort, everybody's cool with it, right? And the hairs were getting long, you know, and whatnot. But Brian, Wayne, and I were still playing at my living room all the time, right? So what kind of stuff would you be jamming on again? The, the, the simple sometimes, stuff, yes, stuff, yeah, some blues came okay. in. We started getting into the blues, and uh, and we'd learn songs. I can remember <clears throat> later on we we pick up like Bob Dylan, Hurricane. Right, and get the riffs all down and, and play a solid version of that. But we were always learning. We are always trying to figure out new things, listen to records. I, I got into uh, Dr. Hook. So I was learning a few of their songs. Still play a couple of them, actually, just for the fun of it. And, you know, so we're, we're listening to different music. You know, I think we tried China Grove and stuff like that. It never fit us. It wasn't our kind of tune. The band? Yeah, we could do the band, you know. Shape on me and those kinds of songs. We, we like that. Brian's singing fit that. And I wasn't a singer yet. I sang backup, and Wayne was a bit of a backup singer, but his voice is always, he had a thin voice. He, he had a hard time singing because his lungs aren't that strong. And he's a smoker in right, those days. We all smoked. But uh, we had fun. Brian was the strongest singer and, and sort of the lead. It must have been a bit of a mind bend for you to come into Sir John Franklin when you first moved up in 67 to be amongst the indigenous people at that time and oh, yeah. Inuit people. Yeah. It, it, it was, to me, it, when I saw Kate Hall, I understood the premise that there's no high school where they lived in either the high school. That's what I thought of it as. I never thought of it as the residential school that you do today. I never knew what went on. Um, I think I went to the odd dance there, it seemed fine. Mm -hmm. uh, but there was definitely, at times you could see the two different sides, but in the school I didn't. I never noticed that. And I know that 
a lot of the people in Cato Hall were being taught more practical things than what I was being taught, or the way I was streamed. I knew that, but I always saw them, right? We always in our, our basic homeroom classes and stuff together. We just went different directions. We all went outside and smoked, you know, bum and cigarettes. But we didn't hang out, right? I would hang out with Andy Sears, people I knew, uh, the other government kids. It wasn't always that way. I mean, eventually it just became part of the yellow knife, right? Whoever was hanging around was hanging yeah, around. Exactly. Didn't matter. You didn't notice any difference. I didn't. I never did it. Tommy Hudson was there or Gary Tease or anybody like that. I didn't, I didn't notice any difference between us and them. There were people who lived in yellow knife longer than I. That's all, that's all I knew. So as far as that goes, your interaction with them was in school and it wasn't necessarily out on the street. And of course, they're, they had curfews and they could only be out yeah. in the town for so long and then they had to be back in the hall, right? And, and people hung out with their own friends, right? Course, High yeah, school's okay. a, click, a, thing, yeah, a little sure. clicky, you cool. know, but so yeah, I, I, never, I never noticed that. <clears throat> no, sort of, especially one coming out of Southern Canada, two coming out of a military, sort of an upbringing that way. But yeah. we've been everywhere. Yeah, that's true too, and probably had to adapt, and so yeah. maybe a little bit more. I, mean, I lived in Gimli, Manitoba. Okay. 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 <laughs> I lived in Metz, France. Yeah. You know, okay. yeah. 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 So, yeah. Ottawa was a bit different, mind you, but uh, yeah. still. Okay. Um, and I never that kind of life or those thoughts never entered my brain, right? I, I, I'm just not sensitive to that. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. So, um, the, but the school was was a huge learning experience. Uh, smoking in the frozen north was a pretty interesting thing. And of course, as a teenager, uh, being a new smoker, it was a big priority <laughs> to figure out how to smoke in the cold. And I can remember I don't know how it happened, but we lobbied the school somehow and got ourselves a smoking hall. And they put it in the middle of school, <laughs> no ventilation at either end, <laughs> and everybody, whether they smoked or not, hung out there. Otherwise, we all stand outside in our shirt sleeves trying to smoke down a cigarette. <laughs> you talked about before, what, what did you call them, the student grants or whatever? The, the oh, youth grants. Youth grants. Yeah, Trudeau came out with the youth grants in the se early 70s. So early 70s, and that was Trudeau came out with that. Uh. Wayne Bertrand got one. Wayne Bertrand ran this little coffee house kind of youth place. I don't know, it was in the United Church basement, somewhere like that. I remember that. I keep going. <laughs> I remember going there a few times. It's pretty cool because you get food and there's tea or coffee on, on, and it seemed like a cool place. I mean, it's still no drugs or anything going around. And maybe, maybe somebody'd have a bit of booze one night or something like that. But you know, it, it was there's no scene like that, right? It was a youth scene, but it was it was clean, and which is quite amazing. You're trying to be hippie, '69, '70, but it wasn't possible because nothing else was there. It wasn't until, well, actually, sorry, 69 Christmas Eve was my first real experience with the new scene, we'll call it. And uh, I've never looked back from that point. I've had uh, a different outlook in life since that point in time. And one that was, I thought, pretty mellow in many ways. Uh, and not afraid of the organic, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the serendipity, the stuff that happens tomorrow uh, that you don't expect. Uh, from that point on, the all night became very important for the fact that I was ready to explore. Mm -hmm. The frontier was there. You know, I'll do it. You know, I need to, someone to volunteer for the Arctic Winter Games. Well, sure. Why not? Uh, sounds like fun. 
know, let's go out to Reggie Cagnoli's and see if we can help him build his cabinet. Okay, you know, why not? And so that became my education. And everything just came together. I mean, music was there, everything was there. You graduated what year? I, I never really graduated, but summer of 69 I left school. You can see over here on the shelf behind you, over where the big stack, this stack of records. Mm -hmm. Well, over here in this shelf, there's five times as many. <laughs> and that collection started in Yellowknife. And most of the, those records are actually bought in Yellowknife, right? I can remember working in the drugstore, winter of 68, or yeah, fall of 68, and all of a sudden, this white record came in the collection of stuff that came in the order on Monday. And I looked at it, and Strange, there's no cover on this, and then all of a sudden, boss in the bottom said the Beatles. And I go, That's mine. And I was the first guy in town to have a, the Beatles record. And was that, <laughs> you know, I already had gone through Sgt. Pepper's in Halifax in a big stereo, but when I got this, I went, Oh, it just it tore my mind. Oh, yeah. So music became that mind expansion. I mean, you know, things like. Moody Blues, Crimson King, uh, It's a Beautiful Day, all these interesting bands that had intricate music. And, and uh, Pink Floyd, of course, you know, all that stuff. Deep Purple, you know. Um, these were huge influences, you know, Led Zeppelin, huge influences through that period. Couldn't play anything, but loved hearing them. Loved it loud, loved it just right could never expect to play music as well as they do but then all of a sudden Neil Young comes along and I started to understand Bob Dylan a lot more and I could play those guys <laughs> so I got a lot more interested in music because I could start playing that Cat Stevens it's, it's interesting talking with you and Wayne probably even at that time as young as I was I was cognizant of these different sort of there, there was different musics that were coming up different styles right. of music that were sort of coming to the forefront, and the other ones never left. They just sort of went on the back burner for a while, yeah. but they just all took their turn. When you were talking earlier about, you know, uh, the Beatles and uh, King Crimson and Pink Floyd, I mean, those guys were in a studio and using all of this this new sort of technology and multi -track Well, Sergeant Pepper led them to. You didn't have a chance in hell of reproducing that on a stage, on a live stage, none whatsoever. Not in those days. Well, not in those days. Unfortunately, <laughs> there wasn't any recording studio. Not, not when you had a column of, of eight <laughs> speakers with... <laughs> <laughs> That's all you could do with it. So, so when the folk thing sort of came to the front, and the blues thing as well, yeah, and that acoustic yep, music, very much so. Again, when you know that resurgence yep. of these old blues guys coming out and going into the colleges and because we all wanted to play what they what we're hearing, but we couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't duplicate it. Yeah, right? it was a live gig and yeah. stuff, and so, and so that, and then that just sort of clicked for me when when uh, yeah. when Wayne and, and when you're talking about that. As but well. don't forget, the, the Beatles are still the foundation as far as we're concerned. So anything the Beatles did, Lennon, McCartney. Harrison, that stuff was still important, but so was um, so was the Who. When the Who came out with Who's Next, we went, "Wow, <laughs> they've matured," you know, yeah. you know. Yeah. And the Stones as well. Oh, the, the Stones are yeah. they're still doing it. Yeah. Yeah. The Stones' last blues album is one of the best they've ever done. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to my mind, uh, I got into all that sort of scene through the records. Yeah, I was gonna. I was gonna say the conduit, the dealer at that time was Harold Click, right? Yeah. And I mean, I spent 
thousands of hours and thousands of dollars in that store just on records. I didn't yeah. buy a lot of gear off of them. No, but, no. But man, it was like I was in there. I mean, I think that the the um, the record shipment came in on Thursday or something, and it was just like I that's right, everybody's there. And then by Tuesday, I'd gone through the whole thing, and I knew every record in the store, and I couldn't wait for the next shipment to exactly. get Exactly. Yeah, it was yeah. nuts. And you know, I can remember, um, I forget what record it was on, but the Battle of Hurricane Carter came out. It was a, a June situation. It must have been around 76, because we were playing the gallery. And Wayne and I both liked Battle of Hurricane Carter. It's just a nice riff, and it had a nice roundness to the verse, right? So you could play a whole verse without playing three chords over and over again. It's kind of neat. And I learned the bass line, and he learned the guitar line. We gave the lyrics to Brian and said, you got to learn these 25 verses. And we got it. In, in about a couple of weeks, we just had it nailed. And we played it very strong, rocky, right? Mm -hmm. We all had electric guitars. And we played it very strong. And we went into the gallery and for a week. And it was Brian's last week playing music with Sky Circle. And we had his brother on his guitars. And we played that gig, and we opened our third set with the Battle of, uh, Battle of Hurricane Carter. And everybody went, wow, this song just came out two weeks ago, and they're playing a powerhouse version of it. And we just made that place dance. Uh, and that was awesome. That, that was a, one of the highlight songs that we, we learned that, that year. To this day, I still play the first verse of that song. <laughs> but, uh, you know, 25 verses is a long song, and Brian did a great job of it. And uh, so that would, I remember that distinctly. The records were, were what drove us. The music we heard got us going. Um, okay, we're gonna hold you there, and we'll do some more rewinding here. Um, <laughs> Whatever you like. So summer '69, and you uh, walked away from school. Uh, and home. And, and home. Yeah, that was it. I was done. Um, I, I was having differences and I said to my dad I think it would be a good idea if I lived on my own in the summer. I had, was, had a job working for Aiden's Aircraft Service and I also had the drugstore gig. I could work there as well for Finlayson. So my dad and I sat down and I said I gotta live my own. So he came up to me in the middle of the summer and said we're about to move home to Victoria. Do you want to come? And I said took me 15 seconds. Best decision I made. I couldn't have found a better place to grow up because I needed to grow up a bit. So 69 was the year that I stuck out on my own and my mother gave me her record player. A little portable record player. So I had my records. I had just a few. I had, um, I had uh, what I have, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper's, maybe a Who album, a couple others like that, right? And I took them with me and moved into the Hardy House that summer. Then I, my dad said, we're gonna leave town, so I had to do two things. I had to get a driver's license and a new job. I got a job in the mailroom in the government office. Right away, they hired me from sight unseen almost. Got my driver's license after one driving lesson. <laughs> I never had to do a driving test since. Typical yellow knife, drove on the block for 20 minutes and the cop says, practice that, <laughs> you're done. Anyhow, so uh, I guess he thought I'd only be driving the yellow knife forever. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so summer 69 was 
interesting. I moved into an apartment. And about oh, Christmas time, Wayne's kind of semi-homeless because he's leaving home around the same time I am. Stan Dobman semi-homeless. And just after Christmas, they kind of move in and start sleeping on my floor. So Wayne's out one night, band practice at the Red House. I'm doing my radio show on CFYK Yellowknife. You did a radio show on CFYK? Yeah. Oh my God. Brian North got us together, and I forget the guy produced the, uh, the operator's name, but John somebody rather. Uh, and they wanted to do a, almost a, a teenage show for an hour. And during the school year, we did this, right? And then the summertime came, they said, well, we want to continue doing this, but there's only two of us left to hang around. Everybody else had gone. So we did it. So through the summer. And that sort of carried on into the fall. And next thing you know, in January, we're still doing this one-hour show on Wednesday nights, broadcast to the whole of the Northwest Territories. CFYK only. What was the name of the show to your mind? I have no idea, but okay. we, we, I bring my records from home, and we play those records, right? And uh, I remember being in this nice apartment down in the high-rise, third floor, for some of the early residents. We, it was a two-bedroom apartment, and the first time I shared with a roommate, it was a friend of mine. Went along pretty good, but he wanted a bachelor apartment, so he moved out. They moved this other guy in with, with me. I didn't know who he was, about 30 years old. And they just assigned me a roommate type of thing. Well, it was a class right from the beginning, because here I am, a young teenager, throwing stuff around and whatnot. Mm -hmm. And the girl who I did the radio show with had a boyfriend who was very jealous. And the date night we were doing the radio show, he broke into my room, my apartment, which I figured out later, it took me a while to figure out, and destroyed my room, which was messy to begin with, but when I got home, it was even messier, right? We got home late, and my roommate of the day decided to go out and literally write a big, huge complaint letter about me. And next morning, I, I, um, I, I get up to the sound of my boss and my housing officer knocking on the door. So, got kicked out. Three days notice, end of January. And also unknown to me that my last paycheck in January, they took off damages from the apartment that I lived in for three months. Saying it was all my fault, even though it could have been the previous roommate or the roommate that was there. It just got charged to me. So it left me with a paycheck of $4.80. No place to live. No food. Nothing. So, I figured out how to survive. Wayne and I found a trailer in the car dump that's halfway down to Old Town. It was just parked there for the winter, and we plugged it into the, the auto body shop next door. It had a heater in it about this tall, fed by oil, kept it warm. We lined it with tinfoil, had two beds, six of us slept in it. Wayne and I shared a bed for four months. And we got we got the bed because we were the guys who did the deal and we got the bed in the corner in the back. Nobody could go by us at night, right? We went by them. We had to get, no water. No plumbing, no water, nothing. We had to take our toothbrushes in our pocket to get some. We had Coke in the cupboard. The cupboard was the cooler because there was no heat in the cupboard. We had a great stereo. And I still have it. These, these are the speakers. Right there. We had the records. That's hardcore, man. <laughs> that's like, that's like, 
the and, hardest core story. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and we lived in that place till June, from January to June. And every morning we'd go up to the Yellow Life Inn for breakfast, and I'd have a two-by-two. Two. So two eggs and two pancakes for breakfast every day. And it was always ready when we got there. They got, we knew how to booth, coffee, two-by-two. Two. So it was your two-dollar breakfast. And I still worked in the middle of it. This concludes part one of the Musicians of the Midnight Sun podcast interview with Rob Wixon. You can scroll through the show notes to listen to part two. I'm Pat Braden. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.